welcome back for a special episode of Your Political Playlist. I'm your host, Emily Tish Sussman. If you haven't heard from me in a while, it's because I've been over hosting my other podcast, She Pivots with Marie Claire. She Pivots interviews women who change their careers for deeply personal, not professional reasons. With the 2022 midterms fast approaching, I wanted to come back over to your political playlist to interview New York's first ever female governor, Governor Kathy Hochul. She's up for re-election, being challenged by Lee Zeldin, an anti-abortion pro-gun conservative who was the only member of Congress that Donald Trump chose to speak on his behalf at his 2020 convention. Governor Hochul is a lifelong New Yorker And after several decades in politics, she's ready for another term in the executive office. Today, I sit down with her to discuss how being a woman and a mother in politics has shaped her policies and strategy as a leader. Let's jump right in. Welcome, Governor Hochul. Well, thank you, Governor Hochul, for joining us. I have to tell you, this is our first crossover episode we've ever done of two podcasts, She Pivots and Your Political Playlist. So Your Political Playlist was started to have female experts on explaining policy to help guide us in elections. And She Pivots was started to speak with women who had changed their careers for deeply personal reasons, not professional reasons. So you are actually (laughs) the perfect guest to be the crossover for both of them, the first female governor of New York. Did you think you were going to be the governor when you were little? Like, what did you think you were going to do? No no little girl thinks they're going to be a governor. And that's sad. And I want to change that when I meet little girls now and their fathers or mothers come up to the on the street and say, oh, look, she's a woman governor. And I say, this can be you too. So, so no, I did not grow up with those role models at all. But no, I didn't think about it at all. I, I just wanted to be involved you know, at age 13, get involved in the political process. And I volunteered on races as a young teenager and uh, got involved. I had an internship. I had done a lot in college. So, so But no way. I, I was never going to even run for office. Never even run. I was going to be the brains and the strategist behind all the male candidates who I worked for, you know, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a member of Congress. And so, so no, girls didn't dream like that, you know, back then. And I'm hoping that my position says, you know, those days are over. Uh, this can be you. I was explaining, my girls are four and two, and I was explaining to them that I was coming to interview you today. And my four-year-old said, well, is she kind she said, is she the president of New York? And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, the best. that's a pretty good explanation. Well, one dad yesterday when I was walking around Queens, he said, she's kind of like the queen of New York. <laughs> I said, oh, that's good. Okay, that's for a little girl who's into the Disney characters and all. That might be something they relate to. But I said, president of New York works. A lot of kids relate to president of New York. Yeah, that's as far as we've gotten. My kids do, they do play with um, Kamala Harris dolls. They're on a good path. Yeah, so that was a good connection for them. So I think they're basically just waiting for your dolls. <laughs> That's how they'll know. Well, we'll have to see about that one. No one's offered to make a doll of me, but um, we'll I know see. I got to talk to your merch people. Yeah, I just don't want to be a bobblehead. Don't make me be a bobblehead. <laughs> <laughs> Those never look good. But so what did you think you were going to be? Like I said, when you're real little, you want to be just fun things. I went on a plane once. I wanted to be a flight attendant because I could fly around the world. And I realized I was too short. You have to be a certain height to be oh. a flight attendant. I saw when I was seventh grade, uh, the FBI came in and talked about you know career day, and I thought I want to do that. So I always have liked you know, anything involving action and travel and excitement. But 
really I was hooked on politics at a very young age. You know, my parents were not political, but they were very much social justice Catholics where we were involved in, you know, I was in fifth grade, 10-year-old, wearing an armband to protest the Vietnam War. So, mm-hmm. so this was part of my story growing up uh, you know, in humble circumstances. Parents didn't have much at all, but uh, they instilled in us you know, the expectation that we'd be involved in our communities. And we knew about Dr. Martin Luther King when he was assassinated. I had already knew his story while he was still a leader. We knew who Bobby Kennedy was, you know, we knew JFK. So, so I grew up in this household where we talked about this at dinner time. And I was a child when, uh, you know, Watergate was going on and I was such a nerdy teenager. I was watching all the hearings, uh, gavel to gavel. I knew all the characters like they were in a soap opera. So, so I think watching all that and seeing the nation's capital and going on a field trip there, uh, I said, I need to be in Washington. I really, really wanted to work in Washington someday. So that put me on a path uh, to get a college degree, studied political science, did internships in Washington during college, and then decided to go to law school. And really glad I did. I was in a big firm for a little while in Washington, but I couldn't wait to leave. Uh, they were very good to me, but I just, you know, I felt like no passion behind it, you know, you know, defending these people. is like, no, 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 I need to be where the action is. So you took a 50% pay cut, so do not take any financial, personal financial advice from me because uh, I was that person who left a better paying job for a lesser one and also didn't know how to negotiate because even with my experience, I was making less than the men next to me. So I just spoke about this on Women's Equality Day. Don't make the mistakes I, I made when I was your age, when I was a lot younger. So, so I lived those experiences, but uh, again, still always going to be the staffer behind the scenes. That's what I thought it, my, my journey would be. So what was that, by the way, I was speaking to a friend yesterday who oversees HR at a large firm, not in New York, but a large firm. And he said to me that what he sees now is that across the board, when they make an offer, every man counters and no woman counters. He said that it, it breaks his heart because they just don't, because women don't think that even at the executive level. Huge mistake, huge mistake. And, you know, you think about, you know, Mika Morning Joe talking about know your worth and getting in there, you make giving examples on how to go in and fight for yourself. So this, it, it's sad that it's set up that way. And that's one thing I try to convey to women. You have to have confidence in yourself. And confidence isn't hard to arrive at. It's a mental decision. Do you walk into a room like you own it? Or are you going to kind of slink along the walls and wait for someone to invite you in or make you feel like, you know, I'll go talk to her maybe. You just have to walk in every room like it's yours and walk into that interview and also walk into your salary negotiations like, hey, they'll be lucky to have me. I've got this. And women are always more qualified. I think there was even a poll that was out recently that said, do you think Governor Kathy Hochul is held to a higher standard as a woman? I think it was over 50, 60% of people said yes. I deal with that. That's the reality for most women. But women can be their best ally if they just change their mindset about what they have to offer. They are probably better than the guys they're going up against, and they deserve to be paid more. And I want to get into some of the structural things in a little. We'll get to that policy piece. But that are holding women back at this particular moment in time in addition to the history of uh, structural pieces that have been holding women back. But for you, what was that decision point where you decided, okay, enough of the background, I'm ready to run myself? We moved back from Washington where my children were born. I wanted them raised around family. I grew up in, again, blue-collar town, but good values. I wanted them to know their grandparents and aunts and uncles. 
And I got involved immediately in the local political party. I'd been involved in, I was in charge of the phone banks and sending out the campaigners with literature and, and, you know, was a player there in my early 30s. And I used to go to all the town board meetings, our local government council member. And I would go to the meetings and I would always be raising my hand or bringing petitions to fight for something to stop this big project from coming. Something's going to hurt the quality of life. I tried to get playgrounds improved. So I was just like this citizen. You know, I was the activist who showed up and spoke up at all the meetings. I had better attendance than half the council members, I'm sure. But then an opening came up and on the board, actually two openings came up and on the board. And I never even dreamed of running for it. But a 22-year-old young man right out of college, living at home with his parents. I'm not even sure he had his first job yet. He decides he's gonna step up and run for this entry-level council member position. And I'd work with him in the political scene. I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm 35, I'm an attorney. I was counseled to a senator in Capitol Hill. I worked in a big law firm. I helped start a small business with my mother. I've, I'm a taxpayer, I've raised children. Maybe I've got what it takes to run for this entry-level position. I mean, that's, that's where, how low my own confidence was in me. And I said, but this 22-year-old has enough confidence in himself. You know, what's wrong with me? Then it became a me problem. Why did he think he could do this and I didn't think I could? So we both ran as Democrats. We beat the Republicans. We both served together for 14 years on the same town board. I literally was with him over the weekend. He's now the CEO of one of the largest healthcare organizations in our state. So his confidence in himself at that young age was well-placed. He knew he had something. I was the one with the problem where I didn't have the confidence, so I broke through, and I tell women that story. I'm guilty of holding myself back because I ran. I knocked on all the doors. I had preschoolers. I dragged them everywhere. It was not easy. Especially when your little three or four year old has to go to the bathroom and you have to knock on a stranger's door. Can I come in and you know, use, let my little girl use her? Can she get a drink of water? It's 95 degrees and she's been out with me for five hours. So, so it was not easy, but I did it. And the lesson I want to leave with, with women on the front of running with children, because I hear a lot of young moms who, who do want to run, they're engaged, they're excited, but I want to have kids or I do have little kids. Well, fast forward almost a, a generation my little kids whose mom was not always home because I was at my meetings, but I took them to vote. I've got them participating. They felt empowered and important, and they were proud of their mom that I had the guts to do this. And today, they are very socially conscious adults. Mm -hmm. And the moral of the story is, your job is to raise, not children, but to raise adults. So it's about the lessons that you're teaching them by showing them you have the guts to run, and you'll take on issues and you're a fighter. My daughter has grit, and she is a fighter. Nobody will mess with her, and I'm proud of that. That's the daughter I wanted to raise, and if I had not shown her that I was willing to take risks right. and run for office, she might have been a different person. So you're leaving lessons to your children, everything you do, and, I, and I'm proud of that. You know, As much as you know, a lot of things I miss, I miss my daughter's seventh birthday. She still reminds me once in a while. Like, I made a lot of other birthdays. I made up for it. So, so that's just, I, I talk about that a lot because I want my story to be a lesson of almost what not to do initially because I should have been a 22-year-old girl running for office. Hmm. That's what I say. Where are the 22-year-old young women who had the same confidence that that young man had uh, many, many years ago? So I think we're going to start changing things, and, I, and I'm really excited about that. I do. I see younger women 
thinking about running for office or at least being more engaged now. I think when I started working in politics, I mean, I was a young staffer working in politics, but when I started, there was a sense that women could only run for office if it was their second career. And their first career may have been may have been staying at home with the kids, but they could only do it once their kids were out of the house. Do you think you waited until your kids were a little bit more sufficient or out of the house to run for higher office? No, I, I didn't wait. Uh, I served all those years because those were the opportunities in front of me. I was trying, I also worked full time. Um, I helped my sister start a tech business in another state. I had to take the bar exam to be her counsel. So, so I was taking the bar, running kids around to all their classes and everything, working full time and a town board member at night. So I was plenty busy with those experiences. And I'll also say one of the reasons I've had a successful political career is that every rung I'm on, I'm not thinking about the next one. When I was town board member for 14 years, that was a conscious decision because I was making a difference there. I was making my community better because of my presence there. And I was proud of that. And I was always helping other candidates get elected statewide and Nationally, I would you know, take time to go help Hillary in, in New Hampshire. So I did all that. Nothing held me back other than me saying, this is where I want to make a difference. Then I had the opportunity to go for a countywide or borough-wide position. I ran for that, was successful. Tough uh, opponent initially, but we overcame that. <clears throat> and then, then the gutsiest thing I've done was to leave the security of that job or to run for a county executive position, which the polls showed I could win and be the first woman county executive in the Buffalo area, Erie County. But right then when I was being asked to entertain that, the opening for the congressional seat opened up in the most Republican district in the state, seven counties, I was only known in one, running against a multimillionaire, I think she's worth 52, $55 million, a woman who self-financed, and I would get clobbered. And I had to make the decision, do I stay with the safe seat and be a county executive, or do I go for go for everything and just try to go for the position that everybody told me I would lose? And, I, and my daughter was 21 at the time. By now she had seen her mom go through all these careers. And I said, Katie, laid it out to her the same way. I could be this, I could try this, but probably lose. And I said, Katie, what should I do? And she said, Mom, Congress, duh, you have to run for Congress. <laughs> and I thought, I almost backed myself into that because I realized I couldn't let my daughter down. If she had to see her mother had the courage to do it. And we worked hard, it was a special election and overcame all the odds. We won that seat and you know, in that position to me to be able to, when I lost it the next year with redistricting, be able to be positioned to be able to run statewide, uh, be successful as Lieutenant Governor and now Governor. And again, never thinking about the next rung. I loved being a Congresswoman I thought after I lost that seat because I supported contraception mandates that people had to provide this as part of healthcare, I supported the Affordable Care Act. I knew that those could end my career in, in Congress because my district was so Republican. And they were, I was right in that yeah. analysis, but I had, I had to do what was right. And I thought that was the end of my political life. And it was very sad, it was a hard yeah. loss to take. And that makes you stronger ultimately, but it is, you know, you feel rejected and it's a hard thing. But that gave me the platform then and the springboard to where I am today. So that's, right. that's the lesson. Always be willing to take that risk, something that people don't expect you to do. And then you'll have confidence in yourself. You'll show your family what you're capable of. And sometimes it just works out. 
You know, I was working in Congress then when you were elected in that special election. I remember it, it was a big deal, like rocked. You know, when the former congressman resigned, when you had the special, like it really rocked Washington. It was a really big deal at the time. You know, the whole concept behind She Pivots as a show is that we're trying to change the cultural conversation around the fact that we have figured out how to have professional resume reasons to paper over all the decisions that we've made in our professional lives. But really often it was personal events that were sometimes outside of our control that put us down a path. And two times in your political career, that opportunity has opened up because of something that was outside of your of your control, outside of your decision. And two times it was as the result, both in Congress and with the governor, at the behavior of men behaving badly and then opening up the pathway for you. So how do you think about taking leadership in both of those instances? I mean, it's, it's actually not the most unusual story in the world, by the way. I have even in the last week or two, I interviewed a CEO who took over her company um, in the Me Too era and the entire executive board had to resign. And we talked about her how she thought about taking leadership in that moment. And I wonder how you approach in that moment, considering you've done it not once, but twice. It gets down to that element of confidence. I knew I could handle it. I knew I could handle being a member of Congress because I had been a staffer. I had worked as a counsel to Senator Moynihan. I knew the policy. I know the district. I knew the needs of the people, even though it was philosophically and politically, I didn't agree with their many of it. But I also, they also knew I was a fighter. That's how I got elected. I said, they knew I was a fighter on issues like Medicare and Social Security. I would fight like hell for the people of that district. And so I walked into that feeling excited about Congress, but I felt prepared. I mean, there are people that are elected. A lot of men are elected. Uh, younger age, you know, Paul Ryan, I think he got elected at, you know, in his early 20s a lot. So, so again, women, Nancy Pelosi was 53 when she first ran for Congress. So you're right. So by the time we get to a certain point, you know, we know we have what it takes. The question is, can you can you use that power? Do you know how to use that power now? And I felt very comfortable in Congress. I truly did. And the second part of your question is, you know, about being governor then. I had been a lieutenant governor for eight solid years. I knew every corner of the state. I knew the people of the state. I knew the concerns they had, the diversity of upstate, downstate, but how to bridge that so-called divide because I don't believe one it really does exist at its core and so I walked in that thinking somebody will have to do this job somebody would have to step in under these circumstances and there's no one in the state more qualified than I am so it should be me and that's something that a lot of women probably would have trouble accepting but I had to show that confidence in myself the ability to do the job and persuade a lot of people who had no idea who I was you know when you're Lieutenant Governor, you don't get a lot of attention. It's all on the governor. So I was able to build relationships with members of the legislature, the political class, the local electeds in small communities, the uh, Democratic chairs all over the state. I didn't go to a single town without taking them out for a cup of coffee or a beer. I mean, just I built relationships that all of a sudden when I got the position, I was able to say, no, I, I, I know them, I know them, I know them, I know how to do this. I just walked in saying, we're good. We've got this. I have to clean up the culture. I have to restore faith in this state again, faith in state government, because it's been shattered. And I have to let women know that it's a whole new game. I hired almost an entirely female senior leadership team. I have the smartest people in the entire state of New York. Uh, everybody admires the caliber of the people I've selected. And that's one of my talents. 
I find good talent and I benefit from that. So change the culture, bring in new people, be able to deal with the adversity of a hurricane, literally days within becoming governor. I had to deal with the loss of 16 New York lives because of the flooding. I'll be doing a, an event on that in a couple of days. The spike in the pandemic, Omicron, where did Omicron come from? We didn't, it was gone. No one even heard of it until last November, and I had a mass over 100 million test kits so I can get kids back to school. You know, masks, no masks, test kits, vaccines. So many decisions had he made, but I felt very confident because I've been through so much. And all my life experiences came to bear, and I never questioned my ability to do the job for one second. And that's not arrogance. That's just lived experiences. And women have that. All women have that. And they have to seek that inside themselves and use it to serve their communities, serve their jobs, be a role model for their families, but it's all within each person. I, I totally agree with you. And I think that a lot of women are struggling right now with trying to figure out what is systemic, what is institutions, and what they can do themselves. You know, women particularly, look, I can speak only as a parent of young children. That is who I am. That is who I'm surrounded with. And it feels like Every piece of the system has failed us over the last couple of years. And I worked on paid, a national paid leave program for the last year, trying to get that passed through Congress. That failed in an incredibly frustrating way. But I know that it's something that New York has taken steps on that you brought in. So how do you think that you are both taking substantive action to help young women and young parents who feel like they've been left behind and also additionally getting the message out to them because substantive action and message can be different? Mm -hmm. Great question. And on the substance, yesterday I announced with Senator Gillibrand, uh, we team up together all the time. I support other women elected officials every chance I get. I thanked her for her work in bringing federal dollars to New York and other states on child care. I was able to combine federal and state money to now have a $7 billion investment in child care. Half of the children in the state of New York are eligible for subsidized child care. That's extraordinary. Yeah. I raised the income limits. I raised the per-child contribution. I funded over you know, hundreds and hundreds, more, you know, almost 900 new facilities that will now be providing child care because they collapsed during the pandemic. I said these were the frontline workers for the frontline workers. I mean, we needed our child care. And we still have over a million people, a million women in the country who have not back to work yet. So I knew this because... When I first had a baby 35 years ago, working for Senator Moynihan, I had no childcare. I loved that job, but we had a state, we pulled all-nighters. You brought your clothes to the office, you, you know, brushed your teeth in the bathroom, you worked around the clock because it was an intense, tense time on the Capitol, on Capitol Hill. And doing that with a new baby didn't work. I had to give up a job I loved because I didn't have childcare. I spoke about this and I say, now, generation later, my new grandbaby, little granddaughter, and my daughter-in-law and my son, they can go back to work because their companies offer paid leave. And we do that in New York. We have a very robust paid family leave program. Can it be better? Of course it can be. We're not like the European countries at all. But we're doing better with the resources we have. So, so I look at constantly how I can lift the burden on working moms in particular, a lot of single parents, and the black and brown communities that were hardest hit during the pandemic because those are the women who had to show up and go to their jobs. Yeah. They worked in hotels. They worked in hospitality. They worked in uh, food service. They worked in the hospitals. And so 
that combination with the deplorable decision to shut down our schools and leave kids who are on the margins anyhow, that losing that anchor, that stability that they had. Sometimes their home life is not good and they have a chance to have a reprieve in a school setting. That was lost. Yeah. The emotional toll that it's taken. So, so you mentioned all these stresses that young families are under. I lived it a long time ago, very different, but I'm seeing it now in what my, my children are dealing with as young parents. So to me, this is deeply personal. It's the first mom and the first grandma governor. So the connecting the policy with our own personal experiences mm -hmm. and also this sense of responsibility. I feel tremendous responsibility to the women of our state to fight for them, whether it's on reproductive care, you know, abortion rights, child care, paid family leave, equality in the workforce. We have another study that we just launched on Women's Equality Day to talk about the disparity, not just in incomes that still exist, but also in what happened during the pandemic. I said, I want to know what happened during the pandemic. Why were women's hardest hit? Harder for them to get back to work. So, so I'm fully utilizing the power of this office as the first woman to help lift up women in particular who've been through so much. And you mentioned one of the issues that is driving so much concern among women of reproductive age, and I think everyone right now, abortion, the Dobbs decision, the overturning of Roe v. Wade nationally and state by state is falling and overturning abortion. You've taken quite a different approach in New York. So tell us about that. Absolutely. When we first learned of the leaked memo, you know, telegraphing what they would end up doing, which we'd hoped they wouldn't do, but they did. Uh, they stripped away a right that we've had actually longer in New York State. We've had the right to an abortion in New York since 1970. So I knew I had to step up. The women of my state would be anxious. Women across this country were anxious. I allocated $35 million right off the bat to go to bolster up our providers, let them hire more staff, expand their spaces, because I knew that people would be coming as to New York as a safe haven. We're seeing that, particularly in Western New York, where I'm from, the Buffalo, it's only three hours from Ohio. Yeah. You wouldn't believe the number of people that are coming there because they're denied these services in their home states. It is heartbreaking, the stories. So, I also ensured that there were protections from extradition for our providers so they didn't have to worry about uh, you know, the vigilanteism that's out there in some states, which is scary, and making sure that you know, we do everything we can to provide services for women coming from elsewhere. So we took a lot of steps. Also realized you know, for many years people just took for granted this right in the state of New York. Of course yes. it's going to always be right. Why would we have to worry about it? Well. Today, it's protected because of the governor that exists. A different governor who's hostile to those rights would have enormous power. The ability to stop the health care, change laws, for example, we require insurance companies to cover abortion. A governor can stop that. A governor wouldn't have, who doesn't support that abortion rights wouldn't have allocated the money. So, so there's areas where people need to know that there's a political ca calculation be, behind this now. You need to be aware when you're in a different state electing state officials, all the way up to your governor, find out where they stand on these issues. Find out. That should be a litmus test. And to companies that are headquartered in states where they now are hostile to women's basic human rights and have to fly their employees out of other states, I'm saying, why are you even there? Come to New York. Come to New York. I make phone calls to CEOs almost every day saying, hey, I noticed you're headquartered in this other state. You sure you want to be there? I'm going to say, come here. Bring your offices here. We are welcome. We embrace 
all people, particularly women who've been through so much, the trauma of being in a state that doesn't give a damn about your health. What educational resources do you find especially useful for young people who want to learn more about getting involved in politics? Well, I'd certainly listen to podcasts like this. (laughs) Thank you so much, Governor. It's been great to have you on. Thank you. Okay, (laughs) bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Political Playlist. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Your Political Playlist. If you missed the news, I'm hosting a new podcast in partnership with Marie Claire, She Pivots. Be sure to head over to She Pivots, where I sit down with dynamic women who have pivoted in their career based on a personal decision. Over the past few years, traditional definitions of success have changed drastically, and our personal stories are playing a bigger role than ever in our professional journeys. So head over to She Pivots to listen, subscribe, and leave a rating if you enjoy the show. You can also follow us on Instagram at She Pivots the Podcast and find more from Governor Hochul at Kathy Hochul NY. Until next time.